You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Given the seemingly endless number of things that could have gone wrong in 2017, from the beginning of the Fed's normalization of interest rate policy. The committee announced today that it will begin its balance sheet normalization program in October. This program, which was described in the June addendum to our policy normalization principles and plans, will gradually decrease our reinvestments of proceeds from maturing treasury securities and principal payments from agency securities. To the continuing drama surrounding Brexit negotiations. I am ambitious and positive for Britain's future and for these negotiations. But I know we still have some way to go. Turmoil in the White House and even a potential nuclear war with North Korea. If it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself. The lack of any market volatility has baffled many observers these past 12 months. But as we turn the page on 2017, there are signs that this absence of any material market risk could be coming to an end and that a return to more normal levels may be a growing theme in the year ahead. If that does indeed turn out to be the case, it will have material ramifications for every risk asset on the planet. This week, on Adventures in Finance, 2018 and the return of volatility. Today is the 14th of December 2017, just 11 days left to Christmas. Unbelievably, this is episode 46 of Adventures in Finance. To my right is James. He's now decided just to go by the one name, like Madonna and Cher. I was going to say Prince, but I think Madonna and Cher will stick with those two. James, how are you, mate? Not bad. I, I got to admit, when you said we had you know 11 days left till Christmas, I started counting on my fingers. So yeah, well, that, sure that, that's going to be a problem. You realise that, right? <laughs> yeah. You're going to come up one short there, hopefully, uh, especially since the operation. Now, um, what's the Twitter update. I mean, obviously, this is the most important part of the show for most people. We should put this at the end, actually, so they don't turn off. Well, it, it takes me that long to just, you know, open up my, my Twitter to figure it out. I still don't really know how to use this thing. Uh, listeners, please talk amongst yourself while James tries to uh, figure out technology. Uh, 349 followers. Right, that's still, what, 10 more than last week? Yeah, I think so. 10 more than last week. That is quite remarkable in many ways. Um, now, this week we are going to shake things up a little bit. This is going to be the first of a twin podcast to close out the year. Uh, we are going to talk about a couple of things that uh, could well become themes for 2018. 
Next week, we'll look at uh, inflation and a possible return of inflationary pressures. And this week, I'm delighted to say we are going to be joined by Chris Cole of Artemis and Dave Dredge, the CIO of Convex Strategies at City Financial, to talk about volatility, something which has been absent from the markets uh, for most of 2017, but which those two fine gentlemen and I happen to think may well make a return. We're also going to shake things up towards the end of the show. Instead of a Things I Got Wrong segment, we are going to give you some recipes for success, which some of our contributors have offered to us throughout the course of this series. Just a a few ideas which they feel will help you become more successful. But that's for later on. Right now, we are going to jump into our feature concerning volatility. And my first guest is David Dredge, the CIO of Convex Strategies at City Financial and one of the more eloquent participants in the volatility market. Dave, welcome to Adventures in Finance. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Grant. Great to hear from you. Uh, So the subject of the day is volatility, something which, uh, in my experience, you know more about than most. So I wanted to get your sense of, first of all, the the current environment, because a lot of people are scratching their heads about this. It's to to the layman who's really only been introduced to the term volatility since there wasn't any. uh, It's a little confusing. So perhaps you could give uh, the perspective of someone who has been immersed in this particular corner of the financial markets for some considerable time. Sure, happy to. Um, I think uh, to most people right now, most people are amazed at how low volatility is. And I will say, uh, in my experience, in terms of realized volatility, this year is indeed very, very unique. An anomaly, depending on how you measure it, far greater than the anomaly of the highs of volatility back in 2008, in that we've had a period of vol persistence without any mean reversion to historical norms, which from where we currently are would be volatility of the upside for a longer period than, well, certainly than I've ever seen and by what data I can get my hands on probably since the 1960s. Having said that, um, late cycle periods of low volatility and low correlation, low volatility and low correlation kind of go hand in hand. Uh, are the norm. And so where we are in the cycle and how volatility is behaving is not unusual at all and certainly not abnormal. The the extent to which possibly realized volatility has behaved is historically abnormal and extreme. And I suspect, as with many things in this cycle, is driven by the extremeness or abnormality, if you want, of monetary policy that has been introduced throughout this cycle as a response to and a reaction to the severity of the cyclical downturn in 2008. Now, having, again, expanded on that, one thing that I will point out, and and again, Grant, you may have heard me say this in the past, uh, just because vol optically is low doesn't necessarily mean from a market price perspective it can't go lower. And so many of the pricing components of volatility, so again, you have to differentiate between realized volatility, which has been historically extreme, but the pricing components of volatility are not so much. In fact, in many cases, I would refer to them as expensive, in particular around the most commonly Uh, traded volatility, VIX and S&P vol, where 
the the VIX index itself would be in the low single-digit percentiles of its historical outcomes. Some of the cost characteristics around S&P volatility, things like implied-to-realized ratios or term structures or SKUs or convexity costs would be in historical highs, in you know, high double-digit percentiles relative to their history. So there may still be room, indeed, for vol to come lower. And if you look historically at the late cycle behaviors of volatility and correlation, we're in very similar levels to what we saw in 2005 and 2006 throughout the year of 2017. So if you equate it with that, then this can probably go on through 2018. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I have some thoughts about why it might change, if you're interested. Oh, I'm very interested. I'll just, but we'll get back to that in one second. I just want to clarify something about that. Now, when you talk about the uh, price components of volatility being actually relatively high, is that a recent phenomenon in that uh, people are starting to try and position themselves for um, an increase in volatility and, it, and it's making it more expensive? Or has this, has this split between... Uh, implied and real, realized being pretty consistent throughout the sort of the, the year we're talking about, 2017? Uh, it's been pretty consistent, actually, Grant. In fact, the sort of the premium, if you will, of owning the market cost of volatility versus the actual realized outcomes of volatility has been fairly consistently expensive or high since the crisis. We've moved in most cases, certainly around equity markets, nowhere near the compressed cost components of volatility that we saw prior to the 0708 uh, cyclical downturn. The certain other um, asset classes, so for example, foreign exchange, volatility in foreign exchange made its historical lows in general, and certainly its post-crisis lows back in the summer of 2014. And while we've compressed significantly this year, and arguably we've compressed at the fastest pace that we've seen at any time post-crisis, we still in general have not gotten anywhere back to where we were in the summer of 2014. The one exception to that statement is maybe oddly given uh, what I'm likely to say next about where I think things will eventually change, well, not eventually, inevitably change is interest rate volatility. Interest rate volatility in general is at its lows, both in sort of optical terms and in uh, expensive versus cheap terms. Okay, so, so this notion that um, you know, everybody's a seller of vol and the short vol trade has been arguably the best performing trade in the world uh, and has reinforced that and, and dragged people in um, too short, more volatility. Mm. Are you seeing that you know, when you when you talk to people, mm. when you talk about volatility, are you seeing mm -hmm. just a, a, a skew in interest to the short side, and people have kind of given up going long vol? Uh, no. Um, in fact, so again, as as you know, I will regularly be, be caught saying that the most expensive vol in the world is S and P vol, right. particularly the VIX. Uh, you know the the 
the challenge with buying volatility is that in general it's difficult. The system is set up to make it easy for participants to acquire assets. It's easy to buy a stock. It's easy to buy a bond. I don't know if you've ever tried it. I have. It's very <laughs> difficult to issue a stock and very difficult to issue a bond. Right? Acquiring liabilities is much more difficult than acquiring assets. And selling volatility is the equivalent of acquiring an asset. Buying volatility is the equivalent of acquiring a liability. And so the system makes it very easy to sell volatility, but in general quite difficult to buy volatility with one very notable exception, VIX. Yeah. Right? You have futures, you have ETFs, it's very, very easy. And so what ends up happening in the system is the demand for volatility, the demand for protection, the demand for insurance, the demand for uh, negatively correlating portfolio diversifying type returns gets the world over inordinately heavily concentrated into S&P and VIX. Whereas the supply of volatility is much, much, much more broadly spread out across the world in asset classes and different markets and different geographies. And so you end up with this phenomenon that you know, most practitioners in the market are very familiar with, where there's a number of places in the world where volatility is cheap, and there's a number of places in the world where volatility is expensive. Again, most notably, VIX and S&P. And it's simply a supply and demand dynamic. And so not surprisingly, as that expensiveness persists around the S&P vol construct, being shorted has been a very, very profitable trade. And with time, presumably, the shorts will start to compress that high cost of ownership and it will eventually cheap it up and then the opportunity set might switch the other way. But throughout this entire year, uh, you know, there's, no, there's no regulatory mandate that the, the cost of owning VIX or S&P vol has to be very high. It must simply be that way because there's clearly more than enough buyers to offset all the sellers that everyone talks about so much. Right. Okay, well, let's, let's come back to what you touched on earlier and your, your thoughts about why this environment may change, because I'm fascinated to hear them. Yeah, I, 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 I had a lunch with an old friend today who's a, an economist and many years in the hedge fund industry and investment banking industry, and he asked me a similar question. I gave the old quote from, uh, sort of a rough quote from the old movie Casablanca, the Humphrey Bogart quote. It's, it's a cycle like any other cycle, just more so. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, cycles uh, all tend to end for the same sort of root cause. Liquidity gets tightened. And, and then the, the implications of that, the, the, the tide goes out and you find out who's not wearing swim trunks. Uh, prior to that, you're not really sure how it's going to evolve as the liquidity contracts in the system. Then you find out where there was uncapitalized risk that the system somehow has to absorb and you get market dislocations around, well, let's say super senior tranches of subprime CDO mortgages where there wasn't capital in place to support the correlation risk assumed in the diversified housing baskets underneath those mortgages. And, and so, but the core, cause of the cyclical change traditionally, and who's to say, you know, contrary to what generally gets reported, 
um, it's not some event. It's an endogenous risk that has built up in the system that one way or another is going to self-correct. You've heard my uh, example, my analogy before of forest fires. Yeah, yeah, but, know, it, but, it, but, it bears, but it bears repeating. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, the, the risk isn't the probability of a lightning strike. Uh, the risk is how much dry brush and grass and trees there are in the ground because it isn't just the unexpected lightning strike that can start the fire. It could be kids playing with matches. And and you don't measure risk by the historical occurrences of lightning. You measure risk by how much damage will be done if the forest burns. And and what tends to be the case is too much risk gets created. I had a great chat in Hong Kong uh, with uh, Louis Gov uh, this week when I was up there. And Louis and I were talking about inflation. And, and inflation in its broad sense, I, I, I describe an analogy, right? And, the way central banks measure or speak about inflation is like the flow of the stream coming down the canyon outside of my house in Salt Lake City, Utah. And they measure the flow of that. And if it gets too low, they call it deflation. And they're afraid of a, a drought in the river driving up. And if it gets too high, they call it inflation and the fear of a flood. And every year, that stream coming down out of the big, big mountains right behind Salt Lake City kind of flows at a fairly steady level. And then in the spring, as it starts to warm up, it picks up flow. But is it the warm weather that's causing the water to go up? No, of course not. It's the melting snow. And so the sort of analogy as I think about it is inflation, is that the inflation, the potential inflation is already in the system once the snow has built up in the mountains. And in the financial market equivalent, think of that as asset prices. The central banks and their efforts to re-stimulate the economy have stored a whole bunch of water in snow in the mountains. And they will start to release that water when they fear that they've stored too much inflation risk in those inflated asset prices, what, what they call in, in central bank speak, financial stability risk. That's the way they refer to it, right? So as they turn the heat up, as they tighten, the inflation gets released where it was stored in the snow and the river starts to rise. Now, we don't have to guess each year if there's going to be a flood in the river. We already know by how much snow there is. <laughs> and then at some point, they'll get panicked that, that the snow has declined so much, asset prices have come down so much, that we're going to have a drought next year because there won't be enough, and they'll turn the temperature back down again, and the flow in the river will go down. So as you see in every cycle that we go through, as they raise rates, inflation goes up, and as they lower rates, inflation goes down by the way they measure it, because again, they're just measuring the flow of the river. Yeah, of but the actual inflation is, is in the system, if you will. And so I believe, just like they did, and you know, I get told, uh, you know, every meeting I have with investors, um, that that too quick or a dislocation in the normalization of monetary policy, or if rates go up too fast, is devastating because it'll, you know, burst asset prices and and mess up this low vol, low correlation world of perfection. And so central banks will never do it because they know that. 
And I always ask, well, then why did they do it last time? Right. And the time, the time before, before that. Exactly and the time right. before that. Exactly. Before right. that. And they do it because they are afraid that there's too much inflation in the system and they need to let some of the water out of the snow. And, and so I expect, you know, absolutely they'll do it again. Now, of course, as they always do, they'll claim that they will do it with perfection. And Bernanke didn't tell you he was going to burst the bubble, but he did burst the bubble. In fact, he lied about, he, you know, he told you he wouldn't burst the bubble. Right. Mark Carney just told everybody that despite being, you know, 700 basis points behind a Taylor rule estimate, that he's only going to raise rates two more times in three years as he's already through his ceiling of his flawed inflation measure. I suspect that's probably not accurate. But the, but the, you know, the problem with this, uh, your analogy, and you really are the king of analogies. Uh, <laughs> everyone you come up with is gold, but, but this one particularly interests me because, of course, the same way with the, the, the temperature heating up and melting the snow and rates rising up and having the same effect on asset prices, there's a lag. And that lag is A, unknowable, and essentially B, uncontrollable. Because if you, if you go too far, if it gets too hot too quickly, um, you've already started that process of the, of the snow melting and the asset prices falling. Right. And, and you, can, you can try and jam the temperature down all you want, but it takes a while for the snow to freeze up and the asset prices to stop falling. Correct. And, and you know, to Correct. your point earlier on, they always do it. it, it it's not last time or the time before that. It's every time. You know, these guys always hike. Yeah until the point where they break it and, and they will do the same again. So, yeah. so I guess looking out into 2018, do you see a heightened risk that 2018 is the year this is likely to happen or do you think they're still frightened enough that they're going to go so slowly that we may eke out another year of this extremely weak and weakening uh, expansion? Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know you've gone outside my comfort zone there asking me about timing of yes, things. Yes, no, exactly right. And, yeah. and uh, I, I, I love putting you on the spot like this because I'm more to see how you wriggle out of it than anything else. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know when they'll do things and I don't know how they'll do it. I know they'll try to claim they know what they're doing and I'm very confident they don't. Right? If you think about my simple example of them controlling the temperature, uh, in terms of the snowpack and how much water will come down the river and when it'll flood and when it'll dry up, think about all the other variables that go into how much snow there will be and, and, and how the, you know, the, the mountain will respond as it melts. Will it all simply flow nicely into the river channel or will there be mudslides? Will somebody build a, a brand new house along the riverbank one year and change the course of the riverbank. And so a water flow that was fine one year jumps the bank and is a disaster the next year. You know, I, I think they're just pretending that they are uh, uh, smoothing the process. In reality, they're not. Right. Uh, I think, I mean, I think obviously you're seeing, you know, I, mean, I, I think last time you and I talked about something, we were talking about rates and the importance of rates in the cycle and how rates eventually will tighten. And, and I think you probably asked me the question, when will rates go up? And I gave the genius answer once they stop going down. Yes. I, I, I seem to remember those almost exact words. Yeah. And, and sure enough, once uh, our, my good friends at the Bank of Japan in July of 2016 announced that they would no longer allow rates to go lower, something that they refer to as yield curve control, right? When they said we will no longer allow rates to go down, we're also not going to allow them to go up but we're no longer allowing it to go down. Then rates everywhere in the world, like magic, turned around and started going up, even though 
most of the other guys weren't hiking or weren't tapering or weren't whatever at the time. Yeah. But sort of the Bank of Japan being the leader in insane monetary policies uh, put a stop to it and rates went up. And now they've been going up ever since. And now, funnily enough, as soon as rates started going up, surprise, surprise, inflation started going up everywhere. Water started coming out of the snow. And so uh, where are we going next? Well, I think probably the most important thing that's been said lately, and not coincidentally from my good friends out of the Bank of Japan, is this introduction of the now or soon to be famous reversal rate. Have you heard about the reversal rate? Uh, I have, but I'm sure there are people out there that haven't, and you are far more qualified to talk about it than I am. So let's, let's hear your description of it rather than mine. And so now the, the esteemed Bank of Japan, who's gone further and farther into extreme monetary policy measures um, to store inflation in the system, uh, have announced that at a certain point they've decided lowering rates starts to become contractionary. Because if you push rates low enough, you start to put your banks in particular, but also your other savings institutions, insurance companies, pension plans, out of business. It's, and it's you're amazing, unlikely right? it's, to... It's, it's amazing that, yeah, that, that yeah. they figured this out. I mean, how could you possibly have, have worked this out? Yeah. Who, would have, who would have seen that coming, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it turns out it's hard to stimulate your economy when you put the entire financial sector out of business. And so they've said at a certain point, lower rates is no longer stimulative. It's contractionary. And they're preparing the market for yet another change in their monetary policy, which one way or another will be a tightening. We will be higher rates, a steeper curve, uh, less QE. You know, people talk about what they think it's going to be. I think probably the most rational one is they move the YCC peg of the 10-year JGB and slide it back down to the five years. So you allow some steepening in the curve beyond five years and maybe a little more flexibility. But who knows what they'll announce or when they'll announce it. But I just think the sheer fact, you know, Bank of Japan, Kuroda and his other mouthpieces aren't randomly all out talking about the reversal rate at the same time because they're not signaling something to the market. Right. I assure you they are signaling something to the market. And so that's just another step in the uh, letting the water out of the snow and, uh, and one that you know, will, will then be followed by, I, in fact, I know we talked about this before, that I thought that the trigger, if you will, of when this would eventually accelerate that would also be the Bank of Japan, that everybody would, would move further first and Bank of Japan with their YCC would lag behind. And then when Bank of Japan finally caved in and tried to play catch up, then it starts sort of a, a domino effect of if, if they catch up, people need to move further ahead and then they'd have to catch up again. And, and maybe you start to pick up the pace of the tightening. I'm sure you've seen also, you know, all the, uh, the recent commentary that, you know, ever since the Fed started tightening, the financial conditions have loosened, which yeah. is very similar to what happened to them in 2004, 2005, which means they have to tighten more and they have to tighten more. Uh, and so, you know, eventually we, we will get there and eventually, just like every other cycle, they will tighten enough that the cost of leverage that has been utilized to take advantage of a low vol, low correlation environment will reverse and people will then want to reduce leverage, which will then increase vol and correlation as it unwinds. Yeah. Well, look, um, 
Before I let you go, one last question. Just um, for, for people listening that keep reading about Vol and hearing about Vol uh, and are trying to figure out what to look for, where should they be looking for signs that the environment is changing? Is it the VIX? Is it, is it that simple? Or are there places where, they, where you think, you know, pay attention to this because if this starts to change, it's, uh, it's a signpost that the, the environment's changing? Yeah, I think very simply, if interest rates, actual, you know, actual interest rates go up faster than implied by the slope of yield curves, then we are tightening, right? And so what we've managed to do thus far is the steepness of the yield curve has been greater than the subsequent movement of interest rates. And so you know, the, 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 the Fed dot plots have been way above what actual interest rates have done. And the yield curve has priced even less than the dot plots. And, and the Fed has done actually less than the yield curve was pricing. <laughs> but when we're doing more than the yield curve is pricing in the US, in the UK, in Europe, in Japan, it's time to uh, worry about the contraction in liquidity and the impact that has on leverage. And then the impact on leverage will have an almost immediate impact on volatility and correlation. Now, the one guy that um, uh, uh, Albert Edwards, our, our mutual friend Albert Edwards, uh, pointed out in a note, I think he did this week, that is already moving interest rates faster than had been implied by the yield curve is the PBOC. So Chinese rates have been going up in recent, everybody's rates have been going up, but Chinese rates have been going up faster. And so that's obviously worth watching when they're the second largest economy and the, by far the largest participant on the global surplus side of the U.S.'s global deficit balance sheet. And, and so worth paying attention to. Uh, something I was talking about, the reason I was up in Hong Kong uh, talking at an event and some people Volatility is low. It's not necessarily cheap everywhere, but it's certainly cheap some places. It's cheap in some places because those are the places where there's supply, but it's not that easy to buy it. And so demand is limited. Where you have more supply than demand, it tends to get cheap. It's a great time for building uh, negatively correlating, uh, positively convex, insurance type hedging strategies which when correctly utilized allow uh, portfolio managers asset managers to take more of the risk they can they they want to take in what is a historically good environment for taking risk low volatility and low correlation i'm sure you've seen the numbers that a a diversified portfolio of equities in 2017 has the best sharp ratio of any time in history right. And, and people have missed and continue to miss that kind of opportunity because quite rightly, they're concerned we're late in the cycle. And so they're cautious and they utilize very inefficient risk mitigation strategies, right? And, that, and thus, they're, they're not able to take the amount of risk that they should be taking. And, you know, and you're very familiar with all those inefficient risk mitigation strategies. I, I like to call them cash and low yielding fixed income and absolute return hedge funds 
All right. Buy good insurance, buy a, hire a good goalkeeper and put more goal scores on the pitch. And you can benefit in the unique compounding impact of the market's best years and cut off the unique compounding impact of the market's worst years. And this is an environment where if central banks, if your expectation is that central banks will continue to go along very slowly in their normalization, try to keep the party going, then you can very much expect another year next year, like we had this year, of unprecedented asset price inflation and low vol, no correlation. And you want to participate in that, but you should likely, logically, because you are, we are late cycle, own insurance against the possibility that that price of leverage turns and volatility and correlation explode the other way as they did in 2008. So that's just my final thought for you. It, it, it all sounds so sensible and so simple, and yet I'm sure there are more people than not out there thinking, you know, why didn't I think of that? Uh, Dave, as always, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it, it's always just such a great time talking to you. Um, for those people out there who aren't familiar with you, how can they find out more? Where can they read any more of your stuff? Where can they f- Tell them where to find you. Yeah, just quite simple. Uh, you can go to the City Financial Investment Company website. You can just Google up City Financial Investment Company uh, on the web and go in there and, and you can track down the, the Convex Strategies business that I'm a part of and get in touch with us. Fantastic. Dave, thank you so much. Uh, I'll let you go and I look forward to the next time you and I can sit down in person and chat. Love it, Grant. Stay in touch. Dave has uh, such a gift of taking complex subjects and simplifying them through the use of just some brilliantly observed analogies. Uh, He's a great thinker and we are shortly to be joined by another one, Chris Cole of Artemis. Um, Chris's writing on volatility and uh, many other subjects is really peerless and uh, I've been fortunate enough to sit down and chat with him several times for Real Vision and each time has been a revelation to me so I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast. Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Now, uh, in the last couple of years, I've said this before, and I will very happily say it again, uh, the the writing you've done on volatility, the environment, um, the setup, and the potential uh, outcomes is far and away the best material I've read in the space. And and we'll we'll make sure everybody understands where they can find it later on, because I think it's just required reading. But as we look at 2018 looming large, uh, and we sit here in, in what has been an unusually calm environment despite uh, all the signs that it should be to the contrary how do you see volatility changing uh, as we move into 2018 if in fact you think it'll change at all or, or are we stuck with this lower for longer forever seemingly well i think in in my recent research paper uh volatility and the alchemy of risk i uh i actually made a statement where i i i think that volatility can or speaking about equity volatility in particular although yeah. volatility is at multi uh uh, multi-asset class lows or lows across asset classes, but speaking particularly about equity vol, I really feel that VIX could potentially dip below nine in the short term before we eventually test um, all-time highs again in the long term. And I think there's a dangerous feedback loop between very low interest rates, debt expansion, and financial engineering strategies that allocate risk based on vol. And this has created a dynamic where volatility is reinforced lower. Uh, Lower volatility feeds into lower volatility, but that that same type of uh, 
that same type of reflexivity can occur in reverse and where volatility can spark higher vol and that can that can work in, 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 in the other direction. So I think what we really need to look at right now, right now across California, there's wildfires raging. What we really need to look at is uh, volatility can stay low unless we see certain catalysts that may come into play where, and I think if we end up seeing those catalysts come come to fruition, that uh, we, we can see a very violent reversal in vol. Um, so I, I kind of see one or the other, um, uh, a scenario where volatility just keeps staying ultra low in a reinforced pattern, or where volatility breaks higher in an uncontrolled fashion. And really what we need to look at is underlying conditions. So, so when you look for those underlying conditions, we've seen, I mean, the, fire, the forest fire is a great analogy, particularly as we've, we've had a fairly benign forest fire season in the US and then suddenly in the space of six or seven weeks we had the catastrophic fires in Sonoma and Napa and now we have the same thing running wild in, uh, in, in Los Angeles. So you know, I think that's a great example of how you can have this very calm environment and suddenly it doesn't just happen once but the risks pick up and once it happens once it can happen again. And, and how do you see the transmission mechanism from this low volatility environment to uh, to a higher environment because we've seen so many things thrown at markets that ordinarily we would have thought would push the VIX up to 12, 15, maybe spike into the 20s, but it just hasn't happened. So how do you see that transmi- uh, transmission mechanism playing out? Well, it's important to understand that there's, you know, right now there's a global short volatility trade that in, in my estimate, uh, I estimate is about $2 trillion worth of financial engineering strategies that exert influence over and are influenced by stock market fall. So it's going to take a pretty big dislocation in volatility for those strategies to reverse. Um, this includes everything from uh, this includes everything from uh, reinforcing strategies like explicit for- short vol strategies that are actually shorting options, to implicit short vol strategies like risk parity var-, var control strategies that are having the effect of uh, of uh, uh, that embed of reflexivity. And then, in addition to that, we have anywhere between 500 to 750 billion dollars worth of share buybacks, which are suppressing vol. So we need to see uh, certain underlying conditions that that can push that can push volatility uh, higher for longer such that these uh, underlying factors that are reinforcing the low vol regime uh, reverse. Um, So what are those factors specifically? Um, I think one of them is actually inflation. Now, I'm not an expert on what could cause inflation. Um, I'm not an expert in predicting inflation. But I think inflation is something where if we end up seeing inflation, we should be on the lookout for, for higher volatility. Um, in 1987, inflation was actually lower than where it is today, and then uh, over a period of about five months, uh, it rose about 300 basis points, and the nominal rate shot up. And what happens is if we have that type of a inflationary shock today, uh, similar to back then, you have a quick, uh, very quick reduction in, um, in, uh, in credit and a liquidity squeeze, and this could lead to a very sharply higher vol environment. Uh, in, in very short order, and uh, that's very similar to what we what we experienced in in 1987. Uh, inflation could be, in many ways, the uh, the spark that ends up igniting the volatility fire. Uh, another potential spark is obviously some sort of geopolitical uh, turmoil um, that's almost unpredictable. Uh, and I think I think another spark, which is really interesting, is uh, a speculative fervor. Uh, this is opposite the inflationary dynamic, but uh, uh, where inflation leads to, 
to a reversal in liquidity. But if we see a situation where uh, the the market ends up, we see people race into equities, we see people race into risk assets, and you have a raging bull market combined uh, with higher volatility, similar to the, to the late 1990s. This is also another scenario. So the fear of missing out, if we have a Goldilocks environment, uh, that could in many ways drive volatility up higher as well. So just let me go back to this point about reflexivity when it comes to short vol strategies reinforcing themselves. You've written some incredibly insightful stuff about this, So, but I want for the people out there listening, if you can help them understand how that reflexivity works and how lower vol begets lower vol, because I think it's a really crucial a dynamic for people to get their heads around. It's, uh, it's interesting because it starts with, there's, a, there's an image that I've put forth, which is uh, the Ouroboros, and this is a snake eating its own tail. And the concept here is that when a snake becomes overheated, it will begin to lose perspective and will stare at its own tail and will begin to self-cannibalize. And it will do this until it dies. And this is a, a classic symbol of alchemy. Well, today, this is exactly what's happening in the stock market. Uh, Ultra-low interest rates, we have about $9 trillion of negative yielding uh, uh, debt, debt instruments. Ultra-low interest rates have created an environment where uh, instead of companies, instead of companies uh, looking to create growth, reinvest in R&D, they are uh, instead buying back their own shares. So they issue debt at ultra-low interest rates. They buy back their own shares. And there has been about $4 trillion worth of share buybacks. Well, what this has done is that that has created a dynamic where every single time the market drops, you have a buyer ready to step in, a price-insensitive buyer ready to step in and bid the market up. That has crushed volatility. The resulting volatility crush has made it very profitable for strategies uh, that profit off of lower and lower vol. That could be everything from strategies like uh, uh, short vol selling, uh, yield enhancement strategies uh, uh, that are executed by uh, some of the pension systems that are selling puts or, or selling call override strategies, or this could be uh, strategies like risk parity, for example, that are implicitly shorting correlation by uh, levering up bond portfolios uh, as as a uh, anti-correlation against stock. Uh, so different strategies that profit off of the assumption of stability, either in volatility or in correlation, have been artificially incentivized. And many of these strategies, like risk parity and VAR control and some CTA-based strategies, will then enhance their exposure to equities. They begin to take more risk they, because they're using volatility as a proxy for the risk-taking. So the lower the vol goes, the more risk they can take until it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. You have, and this feedback loop between share buybacks and all these financial engineering strategies that use volatility as a proxy for risk-taking. Um, one analogy here is classic financial engineering thinks about volatility as an external statistic that describes the state of the game. So if, if we look at the efficient frontier and modern portfolio theory, volatility is being used as a proxy for risk. You want to maximize your return per unit of risk. Risk is being measured by volatility. And in that framework, volatility is looked upon as something that is external, as a statistic that's used to measure the, uh, 
the dynamics of the game, very similar to the way that a sportscaster would measure shots on goal or uh, uh, shots on basket as a statistic for measuring uh, the efficiency of players in a game. Well, the problem is that volatility is not just a, a statistic or an externality. It actually is a player on the field. It's impacting the game because the lower volatility goes, the more many of these strategies are able to expand the risk-taking. So when volatility becomes a player on the game rather than an external, an external measurement of risk, we end up seeing a reflexivity introduced, which can result in lower and lower volatility, but theoretically also volatility going in the opposite direction, where higher vol will result in a cascade of higher and higher volatility. It's, yeah, it's, it's beautifully described, and we and we are we find ourselves here as we go into 2018. Um, that the, the all-time highs, and you referenced that you thought there's a possibility that volatility could go to all-time highs, but those previous all-time highs are a decade ago now. And so you have uh, in, entire trading desks staffed by people that really don't remember what extreme volatility scenarios look like. Even though they can be fleeting, they can do an incredible amount of damage. So, so when, when, you, when you think forward and, and you see a real pathway to all-time high volatilities... Just give us a sense of of how that world looks, because most people won't be able to conceptualize it. You, you've had the experience, so you, you kind of can. But obviously, with the way this short vol trade has been reinforced in this last decade and the way the short vol positions have uh, been built up, that scenario where we do have a new all-time high in volatility will look different again to what we saw in 2008. Yeah, it's... Uh it's very possible this occurs in a very quick withdrawal of liquidity. And actually, I mean, we, we've seen hints of this. We've seen hints of this because uh, even if you look earlier this month, uh, there was a brief sell-off on some, some news about, about Trump that came out that, that ended up not entirely being correct. Um, and we saw the VIX actually jump up four points in 15 minutes on what was a, really a 1% down move in the markets. So there's just a complete vanishing of liquidity as uh, of all short sellers and people look to cover positions in a very short kind of mini flash crash. I, I think the scenario that uh, one might look at, I think 1987 is a very fascinating example of what can go wrong. Because the period in 1987, most people think about Black Monday as occurring in a vacuum where the market dropped 20% in a single day and vol would have shot up to 150 if there had been a VIX back then. There was a VXO. But in truth, there was a very slow buildup. And the way I kind of like to look at this is almost like a barrel of nitroglycerin sitting around in an office building. The nitroglycerin is highly explosive, but could sit there for, for years without any problem until a fire breaks out. So it's when the fire reaches that barrel of nitroglycerin that you end up having a, a normal, a, a normal sell-off explodes into a cataclysmic decline. And in this case, the nitroglycerin, the barrel of nitroglycerin is this buildup of $2 trillion plus of these short vol strategies, or strategies that, that bear uh, some of their return profile from an implicit short vol or short correlation framework. Uh, the 87 scenario is very fascinating because you had a quick 350 basis point increase in interest rates over a period of several months. That led to a blowout in credit spreads and interbank lending spreads. The market initially cheered this rising inflation. 
And the market was up over 30% to start the year before dropping 16% in, in, a, in about two months. And that, that, that uh, lead-up between August to October was a, a decline in markets that led into the reflexive, uh, the reflexive rebalancing of many of these portfolio insurance strategies and then created a cataclysmic decline because the reflexivity inherent in the, in the, uh, the rebalancing of the portfolio insurance financial engineering strategies. This is very similar to what we could see if there is some sort of quick increase in interest rates that leads into a simultaneous decline in stocks and bonds uh, where the Fed is not able to immediately respond because uh, inflation is rising. And then it leads into a sell-off as many of these strategies that rely on the expectation of stability and low vol are forced to deleverage all at once. And I think this is where, where the real risk lies. I don't, there's no guarantee that this happens, but I think the risk of this occurring is, is much higher than normal given, given the amount of reflexivity and the amount of strategies that are relying on volatility as an input. Well, let's think a little how that ripples through um, markets, because as you've said, there there are people shorting vol like pension funds, for example, which uh, have been forced to kind of do that because they've been looking for strategies that can enhance their yield profiles given the poor returns they're getting in the fixed income markets. How does um, even even a, a let's not talk about cataclysmic increase in vol, but let's talk about a period where vol goes, you know, goes into the twenties again. Let's not talk about nineties and over a hundred. But but how does that ripple through this massive short vol complex? Well, I think there's a couple. It's important to understand there's different uh, there's different ecosystems of volatility, and there's different uh, depending on where the short vol pressure is. Uh, we we may see different periods of uh, deleveraging. The if we break down the ecosystems, uh, you have this, you have explicit short volatility strategies, so like the 3 billion plus of short VIX ETPs and the pension overriding strategies that are about $45 billion and about $8 billion worth of strategies that are, that are explicitly shorting options in the liquid alt space. These are strategies that are literally shorting volatility as a, as a form of yield. Enhancement, and uh, so that is probably the smallest portion of the short volatility trade. The much bigger aspect of the short vol trade comes from strategies that are not explicitly shorting options, but derive their return by using volatility as an input for risk taking, and are using uh, driving some returns from the assumption of lower volatility or short correlation or short gamma. These are strategies like risk parity, which is about expectation about 450 to $600 billion worth of exposure, uh, VAR control funds, and uh, some of the CTAs, it's not fair to label CTAs as short vol, but right now the CTAs have a tremendous amount of exposure to the market, some of the highest levels of equity exposure, and will be forced to delever if equity volatility increases. The, the deleveraging of each of these types of strategies will occur at different time horizons. 
So the explicit short vol sellers are really hurt on the first move higher in vol. So if you see markets drop 5 to 10%, these strategies will be forced, uh, will be hit the hardest. Um, in many instances, many of these uh, many of these market participants may seek to roll their positions. They may actually see that first decline as an opportunity to extend into their positions. So if the market drops 5%, they may actually roll their positions and put on uh, new short vol trades. If we end up seeing a situation where the market drops more than 5%, goes down 5 10 15%, 20%, now the accumulated variance will begin to impact the risk parity, the VAR control, the CTAs. And this is where things can really get out of control because if these larger strategies are forced to deliver, then they will, be come, on, they will come online, have selling pressure. At the same time, the, new, the rolled positions in the explicit shortfall strategies will take on new losses, and we may see everyone begin selling the market at once or covering shortfall positions at once. So this is, the type of, this is the type of framework. It's not that everyone is exposed to the same risk. We're, what we really need to look out for is a rolling crisis where, uh, where the market really does uh, it's not just one day the market drops a tremendous amount, but you have this framework where vol builds up over a period of a week to two weeks, resulting in a, a steady unwind of, of positions. Another scenario that's a little less cataclysmic but could potentially happen is, is the Goldilocks scenario of the late 90s, where right now uh, participation among retail in the upside of the market has, has, has not really occurred. The average investor has not been participating in this big rally. If we don't get inflation and we see rates stay relatively low, the fear of missing out begins to push more participants into the market. And we end up with a scenario where, and we've been seeing this a little bit recently, where people are scrambling to buy the market, leading to upside volatility. And in this scenario where you can actually have higher vol and higher equity prices at the same time, driven by right tail volatility. And this is a scenario we may, we may see vol rise into the 20s in conjunction with higher equity returns. And there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an example of this, uh, many examples across history. I think the late 90s was a period where the VIX averaged above 20. Vol was almost five times greater than it is today. And uh, the period between 97 and 99 saw the market rise about 100% with high vol. Uh, so this is a scenario, if we continue to have low rates, we don't see inflation, but more and more participants come into the market, we may see a, a rise in volatility coupled with uh, a speculative fervor. Uh, volatility is agnostic to price direction. So, you know, in this, in this framework, if you can actually have higher volatility if, if people are pushing prices dramatically higher. Yeah, I, I remember that late 90s setup very, very well. Uh, I guess the only difference now being to your earlier point, there wasn't, there wasn't two or three trillion dollars of short vol out there which could be impacted by that kind of a move. Yeah, that's, that's the, and the other, the other end, impact right now is really the, the impact of the, and I haven't mentioned this so much, but the, the share buybacks are pretty massive. The, if you look at it, about 30% of, the, uh, 30% of the share price growth has been driven by share buybacks since the, since the last recession. 
it's uh, it's astounding. And so there's a question as to the efficacy or continued efficacy of those share buybacks and, and whether investors continue to support support uh, companies simply buying back their shares uh, as opposed to investing in the future. But it's 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 worth considering that that if we end up seeing a scenario where the, the tax reform leads to even more share buybacks, uh, this bull market can continue for a while. If that does happen and more and more people begin to pile on in, I, I, I wouldn't expect it to, to occur with S&P Vol realizing three and a half uh, the way it did in October. Um, I'd, I'd expect to see a little bit more higher spot fall combined with, with higher equity returns. Chris, as always, it's just it's, the the problem with talking to you is I, I it, I'm restricted in time. Always, I'd rather sit and do this over several hours. Uh, but look, for those uh, people out there listening to this that want to find out more, and again, I will recommend that everybody reads uh, your work on volatility because it is just such a fantastic framework. Let them know uh, where they can find that and how they can uh, find out more about you and and follow you. Uh, certainly, the uh, the paper Volatility and the Alchemy of Risk is available on our website. Uh, so that's just uh, www.artemiscm.com, artemiscapitalmanagement.com, or you can just Google Volatility and the Alchemy of Risk. And uh, there's also some of our other papers on our, on our website as well, uh, Volatility and the Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma and Volatility at World's End, which uh, have explained my thoughts on vol over the years. And um, Now, Twitter, can, they, can people follow you on Twitter? I think we are on Twitter. <laughs> Some of the, yes, we are. You are. So you are. Uh, we have an Artemis Vega, uh, Vega Twitter page, and so people are welcome to follow us there as well. And we'll post new research up there. Well, again, I, 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 I risk beating a dead horse here, but uh, your your pieces on on volatility are essential reading. Chris, thank you so much once again for joining us. Uh, it's been as much fun as it always is, and I look forward to the next time. Thank you, Grant. It's been a pleasure. You know, it's a confusing world, and the volatility splice is perhaps one of its most complex corners, but uh, both David and Chris have a, a real gift in taking complex subjects and uh, and making them accessible. And again, I, I, I don't want to be a, a bore, but Chris's work on his website, um, Volatility and the Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma and Volatility and the Alchemy of Risk are not only required reading, but they do a fantastic job in, in explaining a lot of this and why it matters to a lot more people than really understand it. So I thank both of our guests uh, for coming on this week. And just to clear that up, uh, Chris's Twitter handle is at Artemis Vol, A-R-T-E-M-I-S-V-O-L. Okay, so we are coming up to Christmas, and Christmas is a time for recipes, James, right? Yep, deep yeah. fried turkey. Deep fried turkey, yes. You're still not going to convince me to try that no matter how hard you try and sell it. So what we thought we'd do is give you some ideas for recipes for success from some of our guests in this uh, most recent series of Adventures in Finance. And this week, we turn to Ben Hunt, the Chief Risk Officer of Salient Partners, Miles Kimball, the Eaton Professor of Economics at University of Colorado Boulder, and Jim Sullivan, the President of Advisory and Consulting at Green Street Advisors, with their recipes for success. Take it away, gentlemen. So my recipe for success is to focus not so much on the what, uh, and to focus much more on the why. So what, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when you read something, when you see a piece of information that comes onto your Bloomberg screen, or you, you see a headline on the, the, the Wall Street Journal, yes, of course you should read it for the what. 
of course you should try to understand what is the information, what is that they are trying to present to you. But even more important than the what, my recipe for success, and this goes back to the notion of playing the player, not just playing the cards, think to yourself, well, why? Why is this information being presented to me? Why now? What's the, what's the underlying motivation behind presenting this information now in this form with these words, uh, with this slant? I think if you think about the why as well as the what, that's the recipe for success for being a, a better consumer of not only investment information, uh, but also political information and life information in general. So that that's my recipe for success is to not just pay attention to the what, but also always think about the why. So the, the thing I, I would recommend for success is pretty simple. It's like try every day to, to get smarter, you know, learn something, think, think hard about uh, think hard about some math, try to figure things out. And I, I think if every day you try to get smarter, um, you're going to find that you are, uh, you know, certainly 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later. And if you, if you really keep thinking, thinking, thinking all the time, it's also, uh, going to keep your mind in better shape, uh, when, uh, when you get older, as I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little closer to, uh, to retirement myself, though not all that close. And, uh, I, I think, you know, people sometimes, people have often in our society had the attitude, Oh, you're born smart or not smart. And I think that's a terrible attitude to take. Uh, you, you can make yourself smarter by trying the, and, and one of the key things is to have patience with it, you know, especially, you know, people say they can't do math. Math is something you need a lot of patience with. You, almost everybody learns math slowly, and but that's true with a lot of other things, too. So, um, you know, just keep working on it and you'll find you, you do get smarter and smarter. To me, the most important lessons that I've learned uh, observing a lot of really smart people who invest a lot of money and do so in a professional way is that um, it ultimately comes down to price and that uh, ideas and excitement and enthusiasm for different things often gets separated from what's the price. And that can happen when things are going up it can also happen when things are going down, as is the case for retail real estate right now. And I think the best investors are very unemotional about um, their enthusiasm or pessimism when it comes down to what's the price I'm willing to pay. So I think uh, risk-adjusted uh, price discovery and the ability of certain investors to really understand that in a way that a lot of the market uh, is either unable to do or is late to the game when it comes to pricing, whatever the investment might be. I think that's um, probably the most important thing that I've observed, having done this for quite some time. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we go, you all know it's coming. Yes, it's our legal disclaimer. 
Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and, of course, the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. Next week, we'll be back with the second half of this doubleheader when we look at uh, another theme that I suspect may well emerge to be important in 2018, and that is inflation. Joining us will be Jawad Mian, uh, the author of Stray Reflections, Peter Bookvar, the chief market analyst at the Lindsay Group, the co-CIO at Bookmark Advisors and the writer of The Book Report, and Jonathan Payne, the author of the eponymous and superbly titled Payne Report. So don't miss us next week when we discuss inflation. In the meantime, if you have an interesting question about this week's show, then we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please subscribe to us on iTunes. Yep, and leave a review. We still need more reviews. Yeah. Uh, nice reviews. Just nice one. Yeah, yeah just okay, nice fine. One. Just also. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you will also find us, James particularly, hanging out in the darker recesses of both Facebook and LinkedIn to search there for Real Vision. Should the mood take you, you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And should the mood take you, you can follow me at AIF James. You could be James's 350th. Another milestone. I'm sure, I'm sure that's some sort of milestone somewhere. It is. It definitely is for you. Yeah. It's 349 above where we thought you'd get to. So this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Keep following him, folks. That's it from us. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com